Hello and welcome to the May 5th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with highlights of what's new in the journal since our last podcast. As I record this during week seven of social distancing in Annals' home city of Philadelphia, and having just finished a day spent triaging health system staff who have potential COVID-19 symptoms or an exposure, I hope you and your loved ones are staying well during the unprecedented times we are all living through. In these unprecedented times, annals and many of our peer journals are receiving unprecedented numbers of manuscripts about SARS-CoV-2 to consider for publication. Annals is fast-tracking our review of these time-sensitive articles, and those that we publish can all be found publicly available in a special collection on annals.org. This collection also provides a free link to a very useful, continually updated resource on COVID-19 from Dynamed. Additional links to American College of Physicians resources to help with practice management and policy issues are also contained in this collection. I'll begin by telling you about articles that Annals recently added to this collection. Since February 2020, as U.S. public health efforts have focused on containing the spread of coronavirus disease 2019, or COVID-19, gun sales in the U.S. have skyrocketed. In March 2020, more than 2.5 million firearms were sold. In the best of times, increased gun ownership is associated with the heightened risk of firearm-related suicide. A global pandemic is definitely not the best of times. On April 22nd, Annals published a commentary that discusses how the risk that social isolation, economic uncertainty, and mental health challenges that the pandemic presents, combined with the market increase in gun purchases, creates a climate with the potential to increase firearm-related suicides. The firearm-related suicide crisis was mounting well before the COVID-19 pandemic, with the more than 25% increase in firearm-related suicide rates from 2006 to 2018. The authors of this commentary propose strategies to reduce the risk that should be taken to avoid a wave of suicide enabled by the growing exposure to household firearms in the wake of the pandemic. These strategies include not only policy actions, but also heightened awareness among clinicians to screen their patients for suicide risk and discuss firearm safety with patients at risk for harming themselves. Also published online first on April 22nd is an Annals for Hospitals commentary. The commentary from the Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress at the School of Medicine in the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda discusses the unique challenges that hospitalists and other frontline healthcare workers face related to the current pandemic. As the COVID-19 pandemic has or threatens to overwhelm healthcare systems, many institutions are developing ventilator triage policies. Next is an article that characterizes triage policies at a sample of North American hospitals. The authors collected information on the policies at hospitals associated with members of the Association of Bioethics Program Directors. 67 program directors, or 92% of those surveyed, responded. 36 were affiliated with hospitals that did not yet have a policy, and seven hospitals' policies could not be shared. Among the 26 unique policies shared and analyzed by the authors, three are produced by state health departments. 
The most frequently cited triage criteria were benefit, need, age, and conservation of resources. Over one-third involved some sort of lottery process. Over 80% of the policies used scoring systems, largely some version of the sequential organ failure assessment score. The authors also discussed the composition of the triage teams. The results may not be generalizable to institutions without academic bioethics programs. However, it is notable that over one half of respondents did not have ventilator triage policies at their institutions. The policies that were in place were heterogeneous and many did not include guidance on fair implementation. The next article also addresses ethical issues in the time of COVID-19. The authors argue that while many aspects of the current pandemic are novel, the ethical dilemmas it presents are not. They argue that longstanding principles of medical ethics should guide the profession, individual clinicians, health systems, and our society. They must be reaffirmed in the circumstances of health system catastrophes during which their application, but not the principles themselves, may change. These principles include justice, equity, and fundamentally the physician's duty to care for all and not discriminate against a class or category of patients. For example, on the basis of age, race, ethnicity, disability, sex, gender identity, social status, or other personal characteristics. The authors note that during a public health catastrophe, the physician's responsibility remains with the health and welfare of individual patients under his or her care, but the well-being of the community must also be considered. Prioritization of resources becomes critical, but prioritization cannot involve discrimination against any group. Next is a brief research report that assesses the number of U.S. healthcare workers providing direct patient care who have risk factors for poor outcome if they develop COVID-19 or who lack health insurance or sick leave. The findings are very concerning. Millions of healthcare workers are assuming substantial personal risk to serve their communities, even though they lack adequate income, sick leave, and health insurance. The situation both dishonors their important contributions and threatens not only their well-being, but also the well-being of the public. African Americans and Latinos are overrepresented among cases of and deaths from COVID-19 nationally and in many of the U.S. regions hardest hit by the pandemic. In a commentary published on April 28, Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo of the University of California, San Francisco, discusses lessons that we should have learned from prior experiences to reduce observed disparities. She writes, quote, can we eschew our collective amnesia, acknowledge the persistence and pervasive nature of our health and healthcare disparities and draw on our experience to overcome, or will the failure of our collective define us as a generation that refused to care and refused to act, end quote. Next is a study that used data from the 2018 American Hospital Association survey to determine the availability of telemedicine services at U.S. hospitals. The authors found that a large proportion of hospitals did not have existing telemedicine programs and will likely require rapid investment in developing the infrastructure needed to deliver patient care remotely and to share limited health care resources across hospitals. The COVID-19 pandemic is rapidly changing the telemedicine landscape and these data provide a baseline to gauge just how far and fast telemedicine advances when circumstances demand innovation in how we provide healthcare. 
On April 28th, we also released a special Analyst on Call podcast episode in which Dr. Center discusses pandemic surge models with Analyst Associate Editor, General Internist, and Modeling Expert, Dr. John Wong of Tufts University. Go to Analyst.org, your favorite podcast aggregator, to download the episode. It's an interesting way to spend 25 minutes and earn some CME and MOC credits while you listen. Environmental services personnel are a critical first line of defense against the spread of COVID-19. A commentary published on May 1st discusses the importance of environmental cleaning during the pandemic and the essential role of environmental services personnel in patient safety. The authors write, quote, these staff perform the arduous tasks of wiping down beds, cleaning bathrooms, and decontaminating hospital equipment. They are the unnoticed sinews of a well-functioning hospital. These essential personnel are still often called housekeepers, a relic from the time when the role was regarded as purely janitorial rather than fundamental to patient safety. In the face of this pandemic, they are among the unsung heroes, the critical first line of defense against infection, end quote. Next is a systematic review that examines the evidence for the burden of coronavirus infections, SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV-1, and MERS-CoV, on healthcare workers and risk factors for infection. The authors searched electronic databases, including the WHO database of publications on coronavirus disease and the MetaArchive preprint server from January 2003 through April 24, 2020, for studies reporting incidents of or outcomes associated with coronavirus infections in healthcare workers and studies on the association between risk factors, demographics, role, exposure, environmental and administrative factors, and personal protective equipment use on healthcare worker infection. 64 studies met inclusion criteria. 43 studies addressed the burden of healthcare worker infections, and 34 addressed risk factors for infection. The strongest evidence on risk factors was on PPE use and decreased infection risk. The association was most consistent for masks, but also observed for gloves, gowns, eye protection, and hand washing. No study evaluated PPE reuse. Certain exposures, such as involvement in intubations, direct patient contact, or contact with bodily secretions, were associated with increased infection risk. Infection control training was associated with decreased risk of infection. Recognizing that the conclusions of this systematic review will likely become quickly outdated as more evidence on SARS-CoV-2 emerges, the authors planned for this systematic review to be both rapid and living. An accompanying editorial that I wrote with my annals colleagues describes what rapid living reviews are. While many aspects of daily life have come to a halt during the COVID-19 pandemic, research certainly has not. The pursuit of evidence to prevent infection with SARS-CoV-2, improve patient outcomes, and quell the pandemic is fast and furious. The rapid accumulation of evidence presents particular challenges for those working to summarize available evidence to inform answers to the many pressing questions about the pandemic. Rapid or living systematic reviews, like the one I just described, offer a potential solution. A rapid review simplifies or omits some components of the systematic review process to reduce information in a timely manner. Living systematic reviews include a prospective plan for continual surveillance of evidence with periodic critical appraisal and synthesis of new evidence. The methods of living systematic reviews are similar to those of regular systematic reviews 
though living reviews additionally include explicit, transparent, and predefined decisions on what intervals and for how long new evidence will be sought and screened, as well as when and how new evidence will be incorporated into the updated review. For example, the authors of the review on healthcare worker risk of infection plan to update their search monthly. Both rapid reviews and traditional systematic reviews may become living reviews. The editorial outlines what annals will be looking for when we consider rapid and living reviews for publication in the journal and the ways in which we will present the updated information to our readers. Because medicine continues to exist outside COVID-19, let me turn to recent articles on other topics. On April 28th, Annals published three systematic reviews that provide evidence-based insights into several aspects of care related to Alzheimer's disease. The reviews examined cognitive tests for older adults with suspected cognitive impairment to distinguish Alzheimer's dementia from mild cognitive impairment or normal cognition, biomarker testing for neuropathologic Alzheimer's disease, and prescription drugs and supplements in the treatment of Alzheimer's. According to the study authors and an accompanying editorial, these evidence reviews can help physicians and patients make well-informed decisions about diagnostic evaluation, treatment, and other important aspects of care for Alzheimer's disease. Next is a case report that suggests that horizontal gaze-evoked nystagmus may be an early warning sign of thymine deficiency. In the report, the author presents a 29-year-old woman who was hospitalized for frequent vomiting over a two-week period. While in the hospital, the patient reported unsteadiness when walking, vertigo, and objects seemed to move back and forth in her field of vision. The author noted that the patient had intermittent nystagmus that was horizontal and left feet when she was looking straight ahead, and she could not keep her eyes in an eccentric lateral position. This type of nystagmus results from dysfunction of the neural integrator, which is located in the nucleus prepositus hypoglossi bilaterally in the floor of the fourth ventricle. The early manifestations of thymine deficiency seem to cluster around susceptible brainstem nuclei located in the floor of the fourth ventricle, leading the clinician to suspect thymine deficiency. The patient improved with thymine supplementation and avoided the Wernicke triad of encephalopathy, ataxia, and ophthalmoplegia. The author proposes that a careful ocular motor and vestibular examination may enable a diagnosis of thymine deficiency before a patient develops dangerous manifestations. According to a study reported in the next article, testing serum concentrations of N-terminal pro-BNP in patients reporting to the emergency department for syncope is unlikely to add value to the clinical evaluation. The challenge of emergency department evaluation for syncope is to accurately identify the serious underlying conditions and patients at risk for short-term serious outcomes while reducing unnecessary investigations and hospitalizations for the rest of the patients. Circulating concentrations of NT pro-BNP are higher among patients with serious underlying conditions, yet the value of adding natriuretic peptides such as NT pro-BNP into routine emergency department evaluation of syncope has been uncertain. Researchers from the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute studied 1,452 patients with syncope at six emergency departments in two Canadian provinces to evaluate whether adding NT pro-BNP testing to the Canadian syncope risk score improves prediction of 30-day serious adverse events. 
they found that NT-proBNP levels were substantially higher among patients with serious adverse events, including those with arrhythmic or cardiac event. However, compared with the prognostic information provided by the score, the biomarker provided no additional benefit regardless of the serious event type and whether the serious adverse event was discovered after the ED initial visit. Given that the existing elements of the score, including electrocardiogram results and troponin levels, are widely available and highly predictive of short-term serious adverse events, the researchers concluded that NT-proBNP measurement is unlikely to be useful in the routine emergency department workup of syncope. A recent trial compared thyroid hormone treatment with placebo among older adults with subclinical hypothyroidism and found no difference in symptoms. However, the authors of the next article wondered whether a subset of patients with subclinical hypothyroidism who have greater symptoms might benefit. So they studied 638 persons aged 65 years or older with persistent subclinical hypothyroidism to determine whether L-thyroxine could improve hypothyroid symptoms and tiredness among older adults with subclinical hypothyroidism and high symptom burden. The researchers found that patients who were treated with thyroid medication did not experience greater improvement in symptoms, quality of life, or hand grip strength, regardless of the severity of their baseline symptoms. In the absence of another randomized clinical trial specifically designed for persons with subclinical hypothyroidism and high symptom burden, these results do not support routine use of L-thyroxine therapy for such patients. H. pylori infection is the main cause of gastrointestinal diseases such as peptic ulcer, gastritis, and gastric cancer. Current guidelines recommend eradication of the infection, but it is difficult to treat because success with previously effective therapies has declined, related largely to the worldwide increase in antibiotic resistance. Both the World Health Organization and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration have designated erythromycin-resistant H. pylori as a focus for new drug development. Researchers at 55 clinical research sites in the United States randomly assigned 455 treatment-naive adults with epigastric discomfort and confirmed H. pylori infection to triple therapy with RBH-105, or dual therapy of amoxicillin and omeprazole, to assess the effectiveness of RHB-105 for H. pylori eradication. RHB-105 is a triple drug combination of omeprazole, amoxicillin, and rifiputin in one capsule. The researchers found that H. pylori eradication rate was significantly greater following treatment with erythributin-based triple therapy than with high-dose amoxicillin and omeprazole dual therapy. Eradication rates were not affected by H. pylori resistance to clarithromycin or metronidazole, which suggests that RHB-105 should be considered as first-line empirical therapy of H. pylori infection. Next is a study that found that men who have sex with men who are being treated for HIV infection are not getting recommended prevention services or sexually transmitted disease testing. Researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention described results from the Medical Monitoring Project, an annual two-stage complex sample survey designed to produce national representative estimates of behavioral and clinical characteristics of adults in the U.S. diagnosed with HIV infection. 
The survey of 4,000 people assessed self-reported behaviors for STD transmission, including sexual behaviors, drug and alcohol use before or during sex, and receipt of HIV or STD prevention services during the past 12 months. Among people diagnosed with HIV, two-thirds reported having anal sex without a condom in the past year, putting them at risk for acquiring STDs and potentially transmitting HIV and STDs to others. However, many did not receive recommended prevention services or STD testing. Risk behaviors for acquiring STDs were similar among patients being treated at all facilities, but those being treated at Ryan White HIV AIDS program funded facilities were more likely to receive recommended STD prevention services and STD testing. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that closer adherence to guidelines for delivering prevention services and STD testing HIV-positive men is sorely needed. Meeting these requirements is necessary for helping to prevent STDs and end the HIV epidemic. Hahnemann University Hospital has provided care for Philadelphians since 1848, but its recent history has been riddled with financial turmoil that culminated in its rapid closure in the summer of 2019. As the hospital shuttered its doors to patients, it also orphaned 583 medical trainees. This crisis exposed vulnerabilities in graduate medical education. Based on a firsthand account of the situation that developed in Philadelphia and reached academic institutions across the country, authors of the next article reflect on lessons learned that may assist leaders at other institutions mitigate the inevitable difficulties that arise when academic hospitals close. The lessons they share pertain to handling panic and administrative burdens in the aftermath of closure, the importance of a well-defined process, a clear understanding of GME funding, and strategies for placement of trainees that minimize disruption of their education. Most of the articles in the May 5th print issue were initially published online first and discussed in prior podcasts. New in the issue is an in-the-clinic review on eosinophilic esophagitis and several humanities pieces. Accompanying the issue is the latest Annals on Call podcast. In this episode, Dr. Center discusses the prevention of catheter-acquired urinary tract infection in hospitalized patients with Dr. Jennifer Meddings of the University of Michigan. That brings me to the end of this podcast. I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've highlighted and earn some CME and MOC credit if you do. Thank you to listeners, whether you're working on the front lines of the pandemic or gaining familiarity with the new world of telemedicine to keep providing care to patients who suffer from conditions other than COVID-19. Stay well and keep washing those hands. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.